Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. So we're recording, and we're lucky enough to have with us today Dr. Anthony Lissy who is a family medical physician or GP in Dallas, Texas. And he's taken advanced arteriology training to diagnose, treat and prevent cardiovascular disease. Welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. It's an honor to uh, be on a great podcast. It's focusing on one of my passions, which is preventative wellness through nutrition. I think that's a great thing that you're doing. Brilliant. And you caught my eye recently on Twitter by stating that you had reversed uh, some of your patient's heart disease. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So a little bit more of a background on me. Uh, My training is traditional training in uh, family medicine, right? Board certified in in family medicine. One of the reasons I went into family medicine was the, the ideally the preventative aspect of it. Well, in America, obviously with the insurance-based system, the preventative aspect is being lost. Uh, physician reimbursements have been cut dramatically uh, over the last you know, 10 to 20 years. And so the average wait time to see a primary care physician is now about seven to eight minutes, which in my opinion, you can't do much prevention. And so I set up my practice uh, in a completely different model. Some people here call it concierge medicine. Essentially it's cutting out insurance and allowing patients to pay a membership fee uh, for my access 24 seven. So basically I take care of fewer patients, but in a much more uh, in, in depth and comprehensive manner. I have great relationships with my patients. I'm able to sit down with them on average for 60 to 90 minutes. And we can really dig into the nuts and bolts of health and wellness and talk about all the pillars of health, which, you know, nutrition, uh, you know, movement, activity, recovery, sleep, stress, all of those things that will absolutely play into long-term health and wellness and longevity. Well, in our country, the biggest killer is cardiovascular disease. So that's a no-brainer to really focus on. And, you know, the traditional method of looking at cardiovascular prevention is, hey, what are your cholesterol levels? Um, You know, take a statin, exercise, don't eat red meat. Well, we now know that that was a lot of, not necessarily garbage, but it's just very it's much more complex than that. There's a lot more facets of cardiovascular health and wellness, and more importantly, just general health and wellness and longevity, that unless you're really looking in depth, you're going to miss a lot of people who would otherwise fall through the cracks with traditional cardiovascular testing, for example. Um, So I started to look further and I got trained in, you know, the arteriology method, the, the method of combining structure and function in our blood vessel walls and figuring out what kind of inflammation levels are there so we can optimize all facets of cardiovascular wellness, diagnose who's got the disease by definition, and then stop that progression and then slowly start to reverse it. Ideally, I'd love to catch people in the primary prevention uh, area, which means that, hey, they don't have any cardiovascular disease yet. 
Our goal is to make sure all their uh, risk factors are mitigated. We keep everything inflammatory at a low level. We keep their uh, arterial health ideal so they don't ever have to deal with heart attack and stroke. Too often though, people will come into me with existing cardiovascular disease, which by definition means that you've got plaques forming somewhere in your artery walls, whether it's in the carotids leading up to the brain, whether it's in the heart. So essentially those people, we have to figure out why uh, they're causing uh, plaques to form, why the disease is there. Uh, focus on the upstream issues, stop the progression of plaques, and then we have to start stabilizing it, and then we start to reverse it. So that's kind of the continuum. If I've got people who come into me after a heart attack or stroke, uh, I've got to go, you know, kind of more of the tertiary uh, prevention, which means first thing, I can't ever let this person have another heart attack. Then down the road, once we stabilize them, let's start it to, you know, halt the progression and reverse it. So it just depends on where they fall on that continuum of prevention uh, that determines how we how we work to truly affect that. And you know, there's a lot of docs who just throw medications at people. And while I'm not completely anti-medicine, um, you know, my, that's my traditional training. It's essentially a medical training in this country. They have you they teach you how to find the diagnosis and then teach you what pill to treat it with. Well, unfortunately, there's so much more to that. And so that's where my extra training and more of the functional medicine and the arteriology world kicks in. And so that's when I can sit down with these people and say, all right, well, what are the risk factors you have? What's going on in your lifestyle? Why are these things present? And let's start working on those things. Maybe medications temporarily, but I don't want you to rely on medications. I don't want medications to be a Band-Aid for you that's then going to, you know, just basically mask a problem that we're not fixing. So that's why I do it. That's kind of the overview uh, on, on how I do it. I'm happy to go more in-depth, uh, depending on how, you, how, how in-depth you want to hear. But, um, you know, by all means, I'll let you kind of drive the bus on what you want to hear and what you think your, uh, your subscribers want to hear. Sure. Well, so, yeah, that's a really nice explanation of, um, the, the recent history of treating, preventing heart disease in this country as well, I would say. And, yeah. and you know, that uh, the state of things. Um, and I think probably a lot of people listening will be familiar, but for those that aren't, maybe you could go a bit more in depth about the traditional understanding of heart disease that's a little simplistic in terms of LDL, so-called bad cholesterol, and maybe actually how you would define heart disease and meaningful uh, reversal of that. Because I think a lot of people would think, well, if you go to your doctor, they say you've got high cholesterol, high bad cholesterol, uh, and you bring that down, then you're reversing heart disease. But in my opinion, that's not true. And it'd be good to know what you think about that. Yeah, I think you're accurate with that statement. Um, you know, the, the way I was trained uh, before I went into the functional training uh, is essentially, yeah, check uh, cholesterol, look at their LDL, their bad cholesterol. Uh, hopefully it's, you know, not over, you know, people use different cut points, 70, 100, 130. Um, well, if it is, treat it or tell them to stop eating red meat, which, you know, people quit eating eggs for years in our country. Eggs were vilified as the enemy. I think eggs are one of the best superfoods out there personally, but, um, you know, it, it was just misaligned uh, data. And you can look back at, you know, when years ago, the American Heart Association started making these improper suggestions and the low fat diet craze came about. And all of a sudden you started to see dramatic rise in the insulin resistance that's out there. You started to see basically people take fat out of their diet and put in carbohydrates. Most of the carbohydrates they're eating were processed carbohydrates. 
high insulinogenic carbohydrates that would spike insulin levels and lead to insulin resistance or prediabetes, which is the most inflammatory thing in our body. Well, that's certainly going to inflame your endothelial layer, the inner lining of your artery walls. That's going to cause cracking. That's going to cause decreased nitric oxide, which is our vasodilating molecule. And now that's the first step in the cascade of things that occur that cause plaques to form, that cause inflammation to build up in the artery wall. And that causes this disease progression to continue. That's all fairly independent of, of cholesterol. Now, if you're eating improper foods and eating high carbs and eating high inflammatory foods, and you're certainly not detoxifying and exercising and not getting enough recovery and not getting enough, what we would say, sympathetic and parasympathetic balance, now all of a sudden you're taking those little smoldering fires and you're pouring gasoline on them in the artery walls. Now your arteries become further uh, inflamed, more unstable. There's more cracking of that endothelial layer. You get this vicious cycle where now you've got uh, you know, particles, maybe cholesterol particles, maybe other inflammatory particles seeping into the artery wall, causing this hypertrophy of the intermuscular layer, which now decreases the lumen, which is the channel the blood flows through. Now you've got plaques that are there that are fairly unstable, and maybe the only thing protecting them is that one cell thick endothelial layer that we know is already dysfunctional. Now you've got increased platelet aggregation, you've got decreased nitric oxide, and what happens then is at some point you could have that dangerous plaque rupture. Once that plaque ruptures and that plaque starts spilling that cholesterol fatty material out into the artery wall, well, then the body comes and puts a clot on top of it to protect that lesion. Well, what happens is the body's typically an overachiever. And so you'll see that that clot will block off downstream blood flow. If it doesn't, it may break off there, travel to an area that's a little more downstream, block that area off. And if that happens in a coronary vessel, there's your heart attack. If that happens in a brain, there's your stroke. So essentially you start looking at that and, and you say, look, we've got, that's the absolute end game, right? We never want to get to that point. And you've got to know the progression that can take 10, 20, sometimes 40 years that will lead you to that point. Now, we've all heard the, the devastating news that, you know, young, healthy, fit individuals succumb to heart attacks and stroke. Those are the typical plaque rupture, um, you know, very inflammatory, uh, whatever it's genetic or whether it's the things that they're doing or whether it's missed risk factors, that can happen. The typical individuals coming to heart attack and stroke is the one that's had this brewing for 40, 50 years, and has kind of slipped through the cracks because maybe they're on a statin medication. Maybe their LDL was less than 70, but nobody attacked the inflammation. Nobody attacked the insulin levels. Nobody attacked the thing that's driving the bus, which certainly wasn't cholesterol. So, you know, while, while I don't ignore cholesterol, I like to focus on, as I say, cholesterol balance. Um, I use kind of a very simplistic uh, description of cholesterol flow in the artery walls. And I talk about the types of cholesterols that we make. I tell people that, you know, think of your artery walls as a tennis net. Uh, you can make tennis ball sized cholesterol particles, or you can make golf ball sized cholesterol particles. And essentially, if you're making the small, dense golf ball size, well, there's going to go through the tennis net. There's going to get into the artery wall and create plaques. If you're making the big, buoyant, less atherogenic or less plaque forming tennis ball particles, they're not going to go through the artery walls. And so it's how your body, specifically the liver, packages these cholesterol particles that's going to determine the flux in and out of the walls. And so you can do advanced testing. You can look at the apolipoprotein Bs, As, look at that ratio, and you can look at particle size. 
Uh, what I look at a lot in my patients, if we don't have all the advanced testing just yet, or they bring me labs from another practitioner that just does a basic cholesterol panel, I like to see the triglyceride to HDL ratio. That tells us a lot about the particle size. The closer you can get your triglyceride to HDL ratio to one, the better particles you're going to make, the more tennis balls you're going to make. Now, there's, that's a very loose interpretation. It's a rough estimate. Certainly, we like to check particle sizes. We like to check your ApoB and ApoA molecules. But that's how we roughly estimate what's going on. And then by using nutrition, by using supplementation, by using lifestyle interventions, long-term, our goal is to reshape the way that the liver packages these cholesterol particles and try to get you making more of the healthier type than the unhealthy type. That's how I look at cholesterol. And that's how I interpret cholesterol. Uh, data with my patients. And so, you know, that's one aspect of things. I certainly alluded to, to many others, but you know, that's how I see the old way of looking at cholesterol versus the new way. Uh, some docs actually will say that, uh, think of your cholesterol as the police officer at the scene of the crime. It's always going to be there, but it did not do, it did not, uh, you know, participate in the crime. It, it's just something that's found in heart attack and stroke but it may not be the reason that that occurred, if that makes sense. And so there's just a lot of different ways to look at it. And I think that, you know, too many people are just jumping on one side of the fence or the other where cholesterol doesn't matter or cholesterol is all that matters. And I think there's a blend between the two. And I think the better you understand how, you know, cholesterol transport works and how inflammation in the artery walls can affect other parts of the body, right? If you've got inflammation in the liver, you've likely got it in the artery walls and vice versa. So if I've got inflammation in the artery walls, my liver is likely inflamed too. And an inflamed liver make it, makes unhealthy cholesterol particles. So that's how I link them up. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think to, to understand all is to forgive all. And uh, I think um, understanding why doctors, you know, maybe don't have a complete picture is, is useful. And to my mind, it's partly because doctors get training, which might be, you know, 10 or 20 years off the cutting edge of uh, you know patient experience and some of the, the best doctors maybe go a bit maverick and decide to um, do what they think is best clinically for the patients and we see amazing results but that takes a long time to filter through and doctors typically don't have a lot of time like you were saying in the usual system to take time to do the research and all the rest of it so I don't think um, I think uh, you're right that having a complete picture is the best idea and you often find now that doctors uh, reach the same conclusion that you have. Um, I mean, if you're not measuring the extent of the disease by uh, how much cholesterol someone has, then maybe you've got a more direct measurement. I mean, do you use a coronary artery calcium scan to see how much plaque there actually is and how much uh, um, narrowing of the artery there is? And do you see uh, uh, those numbers going, uh, going down at all? Yeah, that's one of the many things that I use to, to check. I, as I mentioned earlier, I try to combine structure and function to get the best insight into what's happening in the artery walls. So structurally, the assessments I start with, uh, I like a CAC score. A coronary artery calcium score can give us a good insight into plaques that have been there a while, long enough to actually lay down calcium on top of the plaque. But what about those soft plaques that may not have had enough time to, to calcify yet? Um, one of the ways I assess those without obviously going and getting a full uh, cardiac cath is I like to do a CIMT test. Uh, a CIMT test stands for uh, carotid insulin media thickness test. And essentially you're measuring the inner 
muscular layer of the artery walls. You know, if there's genetically increased arterial stress or hypertrophy, you'll see a little bit of thickness. If there is a little bit of endothelial dysfunction or maybe blood pressure issues because of that, you'll see some thickness. You can have thickness without plaques or you can have, uh, you know, thickness with plaques. And certainly the more plaques you have, the thicker it will get. Well, honestly, with my world, I'm not necessarily seeing people who are coming in uh, so thick walled and so narrowed, they're needing a stent. Now, does that happen? Absolutely. Uh, in my world, I'm, I work with a lot of athletes, a lot of executives, a lot of very healthy people who want to take their health to the next level. I certainly work with people with cardiovascular disease too, who may have had a stent in the past, but I want to ascertain what's going on specifically in the artery wall. That's a difference, in my opinion, uh, between what I do as an arteriologist versus someone who's a cardiologist. I look at them more of like a luminologist. The lumen, the channel of the blood flow, uh, they want that to stay open. And if it's not open, they'll open it up with a stent or with a bypass. Um, you know, they don't necessarily, and, and there are a lot of good ones out there. I'm never going to bag on the cardiologist because they do great work. Unfortunately, in their training too, they're a little behind the times, as you alluded to. I've got a lot of great functional cardiologists that I refer to, and they're unbelievable in their knowledge of inflammation and the driving of uh, arterial disease from inflammation. But um, so in my world, I care about that inner lining of the artery wall. I care about the endothelial layer. I care about what starts that fire, so to speak. Um, and so without a doubt, I try to look at other markers to combine with my coronary artery calcium scan and my CMT to then figure out, okay, structurally, they look like this. Well, functionally, why do they look like that? And so then I check out my markers uh, that I alluded to earlier, uh, inflammatory markers. I like to look at our HSCRP for a general marker of inflammation in the body. I like to look at myeloperoxidase, LPPLA2, which are both enzymes that basically increase inflammation in the artery wall. We can detect um, hidden inflammation or those little smoldering fires if those enzymes are elevated in the artery walls. Um, I like to look at oxidation levels. I like to look at endothelial health levels. Um, ADMA is a test we have here in this country by Cleveland Heart Labs. It's a fantastic measure of the nitric oxide producing capability of the inner lining of the artery wall. That's essentially where we start with everything. And then microalbumin creatinine ratio is an older way that we have to look at the health of the small vessels in the kidneys, which basically once the endothelial layer becomes affected, you start to spill protein in the urine. We can detect that uh, using this particular assay. Uh, so those are some of the markers I use in conjunction with the structural uh, test and with my advanced lipoprotein. And then I can put all of those together and get a really good insight on, on where they are, why they are where they are, and then what we need to do about it to make sure uh, we start halting or reversing what we see. You ask if I do reverse it, and, and the answer is yes. Uh, consistently, if people will follow my nutritional supplementation and sometimes medical recommendations, uh, I will see the plaque progression slow down. I will see it stop. I will see the carotid intermedia thickness get thinner. Uh, I will see plaques start to become more stable. I may actually see calcium levels go up in the coronary artery calcium score because I like to tell people coronary artery calcium score in my clinical experience, it seems to show what we're seeing five to 10 years ago uh, when the soft plaques are being laid down. And it may take sometimes that long, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer for the calcium to be laid down on those plaques in the coronary vessels. So I've got some people, we get tuned up very, very nicely from a structural and functional level, but they're still laying down calcium in the arteries in the, in the heart. 
Well, I tell them, hey, we need to, we know what's going on. We know what happened five to 10 years ago. Let's not worry about that too much because we know where we're heading. And over time, if we work on reversing that, that will slowly start to level out, if not reverse. Um, there's a couple key interventions that we're uh, playing around with. There's some good data out there showing that, you know, vitamin K can, can help with that quite a bit as long as we're able to convert it if we're using the right uh, vitamin K. Some people use unopposed vitamin D. I'm a big proponent of vitamin D and supplementation, but if we don't pair it with vitamin K, we can increase the rate of calcification as well. So there's a lot of things that we have to look at there and play in with. And uh, it's somewhat complex, but if you have a patient who's willing to work with you, uh, it's certainly a science and an art. Uh, nobody responds the same way. Uh, everybody has different factors in play. Genetics are huge as well. I'm big at looking at genetic markers and figuring out who we have to be more aggressive with and, and who we can be, have a little bit more of a safety net with. Um, so it's a very personalized approach as far as heart attack and stroke prevention. And, you know, I tell people I, I never really treat the same two people or two people the same way. There's always some variation in how we're doing things. Um, you know, all the lifestyle interventions, um, those are key. Uh, nutrition, not only nutrition type, but also nutrition timing uh, is important. I think uh, sleep and recovery is important. I mentioned our sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. You know, if we've got our executives or our professional athletes I work with who are basically full throttle all the time, their cortisol levels are going to go through the roof. Their unopposed sympathetic tone uh, is going to cause vasoconstriction. It's going to increase blood pressure. It's going to increase heart rate. That will slowly inflame the artery walls. So we've got to find more time to push the pause button in the day, have that parasympathetic balance. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that meditation, mindfulness is going to reverse heart disease, but it's certainly going to help. And, and we've got to have that balance so we can get our optimal sleep and our adrenal glands stay healthy and our cortisol levels become uh, more balanced. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, you talk about um, nitric oxide and um, yeah, the, uh, the particular person that I think of is Malcolm Kendrick, who's a doctor in the UK. He's from Scotland originally, and he talks about NO uh, being produced in the endothelium and the sort of um, single cell um, coating inside the artery and he uh, he also talks about vitamin D and um, particularly getting sunshine which is very difficult in Scotland a lot of the time <laughs> um, and so people used to have cod liver oil all the time to get the vitamin D. I mean, vitamin K is clearly important um, in uh, the function of telling calcium where to go in the body and you know there's this laying down of deposits. It was really interesting I didn't realize that seeing the calcium scan was like a snapshot in time, like seeing you know, light from a distant star or whatever. Um, I suppose uh, coronary calcium is five um, plaque years away from what actually when <laughs> happened. I like that, that's good, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Glasgow in Scotland has something called the Glasgow effect. And I don't know if you've heard of this. It's actually got a, a, um, a shorter life expectancy than even other post-industrial, um, mainly working class cities in the north of the UK, which have suffered from similar levels of, you know, unemployment and so on. And it's, uh, the Glasgow effect is hard to explain. Um, some people think it might be the extra latitude difference that means that people have a bit less vitamin D in their system or, you know, there's various different, um, you know, there's more maybe kind of deep fried foods here, you know, in, in mm -hmm inflammatory vegetable oil and that sort of thing but um it's, it's really it's really difficult to say and 
you know, our, our healthcare system really only provides uh, short bursts at the doctor and it's mainly this, the, the same sort of preventative uh, medicine that you were talking about. I mean, it'd be really nice if everyone had access to the, at least the type of information that you're talking about, if not the, the length of consultation. I mean, do you think um, there's, there's hope for that uh, being the case, given that it's, it's tricky, it's a tricky business to give medical advice on mass and online and um, to people who maybe don't have the resources to pay for it individually. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's something we somewhat struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis um, and the type of care that we deliver. You know, some people will, will say, well, you know, don't you feel bad that uh, you are only able to deliver care to a fraction of the population that you would if you were in a normal insurance base? And to that, I say, well, yes, to some extent, but if you think about it, if I, if I was in the business of the traditional insurance-based practitioner seeing 50 patients a day, okay, great, I'll see 50 patients a day instead of you know, eight to 10, but the quality that I'm delivering to those 50 patients is so watered down, it, it, what's the point, right? I'd rather have quality versus quantity. So what I try to do is, you know, whenever's, whenever it's feasible and whenever it's, it's, I guess, applicable. I, I will try to uh, offer public speaking events in the area and talk about some of the big picture things people can do on a day-to-day -day basis that may not be standard of care that they're hearing from their traditional doctor. Uh, I try to get back to the community. Uh, one of the things that we offer uh, here in Dallas, particularly at, at our practices uh, here at Diamond Physicians, uh, we do offer kind of a, a direct primary care uh, system, which is basically where, you know, we're not talking thousands of dollars a year. We may be talking, you know, that the price of a phone bill a month uh, to have access to a doctor to get this kind of great recommendation uh, to optimize wellness, to look proactively and, and certainly to have them for acute issues. So uh, we're trying our best in this industry to do what we can in a cost-effective manner it's not necessarily just for the super elite. Uh, and, and we're certainly growing that trend across our country. Um, we see that healthcare is just not working in the traditional uh, world, uh, the traditional method out there, certainly in our country and clearly all over. But uh, there, we're finally starting to see that that ship start to turn around and come back more to the wellness that, because we just we see how poor outcomes are right now. And so uh, the government's finally opening their, their ears and their eyes to this big surge of these direct primary care practices opening up all over the country. And patients are really welcoming with open arms um, because it's just not sustainable to practice medicine in a way that's unfortunately the, the traditional model. Uh, will allow. So, you know, that's what I try to do. I certainly try to help, um, you know, the general population, you know, like anything in healthcare, you got to be careful of the legalities because, you know, you can't go out there and just start spewing medical advice all over the place. because You're going to find somebody that that doesn't apply to. They're going to take it and misinterpret it. And then they're going to unfortunately spin it back on you. So there is a little bit uh, there to be careful with, but I think general talking recommendations, and then hopefully they can use that, find someone in their area that can be very well trained in this and, and help them guide that, uh, that, that ship, that that's the way to go about it. You know, People, there is so much data out there on the internet right now, and there's so many support groups, and there's this kind of upswelling, this groundswelling of a ground surge of, of these awesome functional medicine doctors who are taking a social media and giving uh, 
people an opportunity to have their eyes open to a new way of looking at health and wellness and longevity and certainly cardiovascular prevention. And I think there's you know, great talks that are on YouTube right now and some of the best out there are talking about the, the lipid theories and, and lipid hypotheses and, and how nutrition is so important and the different types of nutrition that can you know, benefit cardiovascular wellness, whether it's you know, the ketogenic diet for some, whether it's intermittent fasting for others, uh, whether it's low carb, high fat, whether it's paleo. Uh, there's so many different ways to go about it. And I think they're all great for the right person. I think you have to individualize the therapy uh, from a nutrition standpoint based on how, how you know, how's somebody going to feel on certain, on certain uh, nutritional approaches, who's going to respond best. You got to look at genetics. You got to look at where they start from. You got to look at what their health goals are. Um, so, you know, it's fun to work with the people who are uh, well-educated uh, on, on what's out there. Uh, I like when people come in and have done their research and are familiar when I start talking about these methods, because then we can have a great knowledgeable conversation about, uh, you know, more in depth than I don't have to sit there and be very high level and, and talk to them on a third grade level. I can have a very in-depth conversation with them because they've been exposed to this already out there in social media. So I think it's great where we're heading with this and I think it's only going to get better. Yes. Uh, I think it's a hopeful attitude that I share. Um, I mean, it'd be really nice to see it in Scotland and uh, it'd be nice to see you over in Scotland. I think uh, something that you're passionate about is um, is helping people who are into golf improve their performance. And I had a little side question, which was if, if you've got a patient coming in who basically wanted to go from zero to hero in exercise terms, um, what would your advice be if they're, if they're you know, going low carb? Would it be to just exercise normally or would it be to taper up or does it depend? And then also, how does what you do um, apply to golfers particularly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how do people start, you know, from going to the couch to, to being, to being a stud in the gym or a stud on, on the field of court? Well, one of the things I, and this actually will play into how I work with golfers too. One of the biggest uh, terms and one of the biggest aspects I focus on is what we call metabolic flexibility, right? How well are you able to flip back and forth between using stored carbohydrates in the form of glycogen for energy? And then how can you slip into fat burning uh, when necessary, whether you're going a long time in between meals or whether you've exhausted your, your uh, carbohydrate, your glucose stores in the form of glycogen. So what I typically see if someone who's not doing much and who's not very metabolically flexible, they may have very high fasting insulin levels. And if you understand what insulin does, insulin is an energy storage hormone in the body, right? We release insulin after we eat. And so essentially when we, eat anything, we're going to release insulin. If we eat a uh, pure fat source, it's very little insulin. Protein is moderate. And then carbohydrates is certainly a lot higher. Well, if you are eating six times a day and eating high carbohydrate meals, you're constantly spiking your insulin throughout the day. And that basically overworks your insulin receptors. And just like any, I always use the, uh, the, some, the metaphor of the, the factory worker, the assembly line worker. If, you don't, if they've got one job to do and they're overworked, well, they're going to go on strike. Well, that's what your body does. So once you start becoming, uh, you start shutting down those insulin receptors, the body will literally downregulate them off the surface of the cells. And you can't respond to the insulin the way you used to. That's becoming insulin resistant. Uh, that is the precursor to diabetes. But so many people, again, our country, the recent uh, studies show that about 60 to 80% of individuals in our country are metabolically unhealthy, which means that they essentially have insulin resistance. Of those uh, individuals, I'd say nine out of 10 don't know they have it because traditional methods of detection, uh, they don't pick it up until it's too late. So for someone like that, who comes in with a high fasting insulin level and who's insulin resistant, 
Well, they may want to go low carb and they want to go exercise. They may not be able to early on because there's a period of what we would say fat adaptation that has to occur. It's basically a process of getting our insulin levels down enough where once we deplete our glucose stores in the body, we can slip into fat burning mode very easily. So insulin turns a normal two-way road in and out of fat cells into a one-way road in. We can't get it out. It's like having a deep freeze out in the garage full of you know, meat, but we can't get to it because our, the chain is on that. And our refrigerator is empty, but we can't get into that deep freeze for extra food. That's what insulin, high insulin levels do. And so we have to get people trained. We usually start, okay, very mild exercise, uh, just get moving. And then we really work on nutrient type and timing to decrease insulin levels. And once they're able to use fat a little bit better, we'll start to get more aggressive with the exercise and slowly blend that. That may take a month or two if they're literally coming off the couch and not doing anything. Uh, that actually pairs in well with my, with my golfers, you know, for years, uh, for those familiar with the, the nutrition aspect of golf, it used to be, you know, eat a lot of complex carbohydrates and then every three holes on course, you know, eat something. And so, you know, a lot of times we find golfers that would come in and, and, you know, they're walking all the time. They're, you know, practice rounds and, and pro-ams and then tournament days. You know, they may be walking 10 miles a day, you know, five or six days a week. But because they're literally eating every two hours, what you see is you see a lot of metabolic uh, inflexibility. And so you see higher insulin levels than normal and you see that, well, yeah, I can't quite get as lean as I want and I can't put the muscle on as much as I want. And so you almost have to go a sharp 180 away from the old recommendation. So some of the golfers that I work with now on the PGA Tour specifically, um, we're playing around with modified intermittent fasting uh, on specific non-tournament days to train them to then either on tournament days uh, play an early morning round in a fasted state and be able to use purely the fat on their body for energy, which keeps them. I have one guy who basically loves it. He will any morning round. Uh, he will play 100% fasted state because he's very efficient at using fat for fuel now. So he'll actually slip into ketosis, play his round in a ketosis state, hyper-focused, feels great, awesome energy levels. There's no dip that he used to have when his blood sugars were going like this up and down. And then I have other people who they won't do it on tournament days, but they'll basically do it uh, on non-tournament days and they'll fast and they'll get their insulin levels down. So if they do have some complex carbohydrates, whether it's you know low sugar, uh, granola, or whether it's some kind of nut or beef jerky, something like that that's lower uh, in the insulin release, uh, but still can sustain blood sugar levels. Uh, they're still eating stuff on course, but it doesn't have to be every three holes. It might be, you know, every six holes or every nine holes, which is a little bit better. And so uh, that's kind of how I work with, with the golfers. You know, it's funny, I see a lot of inflammation uh, in my golfers, specifically, um, you know, guys that are traveling a lot, right? The, the toll that travel takes. Obviously, here we are, uh, Open Championship Week, too. So a lot of my guys obviously heading across the pond. Um, you know, we've got to prepare uh, before a trip like this. and We've got to really optimize their immunity uh, to keep them healthy. And we got to really optimize their recovery uh, because they're going to get over there. They're going to be jet lagged. They're going to go right in and start playing practice rounds. And certainly tournament uh, starts on Thursday. So um, we really have to play around with that. And we have to get their nutrition optimized. And they go over there and, you know, many will take their chefs with them. So they have the, the standard, um, you know, what they're used to because it's obviously hard, whether you're going uh, to, you know, England, Scotland, Ireland, wherever, or if you're going, you know, from Texas to say Florida, you may not be able to control everything the way that you, that you can here. So that's a big aspect, nutrition, uh, you know, keeping inflammation levels low through nutrition, through supplementation and then optimizing sleep as well. 
uh, that's how I work with some of my golfers specifically. And then obviously a lot with uh, other athletes as well. I've got retired baseball players and football players who kind of hit a wall towards the end of their career and they come to me for functional testing and we're looking for, you know, food allergies. We're looking for inflammation. We're looking for uh, microbiome changes. And, you know, I get the results and I'm like, well, gosh, no wonder you just hit a wall because I couldn't imagine performing at the high, I couldn't imagine performing at any level, much less a high level like you were required to with, you know, a uh, unhealthy digestive tract with an imbalanced microbiome, with leaky gut, with food sensitivities and with inflammation all over the body. And so, you know, we, we'll do elimination diets, pull certain inflammatory things out for four weeks uh, and then start putting them back in and confirming what we're seeing on our testing to then be able to figure out what our triggers are. And that way we can play around with their nutrition based on what they need and when they need it uh, to, you know, it's easy with golfers because essentially we've got four majors a year, right? And everybody wants to peak once a month during the summer for the four majors. Um, you know, any other sport, you kind of got to be on your game constantly. Obviously playoff time is a different story, but you know, there's always times we need to be, you know, at a little bit higher level. And, uh, and so we will, we'll work with that and we'll, we'll figure out, you know, what their triggers are and, and what works for them. Interesting. That's, that's really cool. Um, well, I really appreciate your time. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, where you want them to find you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can certainly follow me on Twitter. I, I post most of um, you know my medical um, you know studies that I find interesting. I'll retweet a lot of the colleagues that I certainly follow, and um, that's uh, Dr. Anthony Lissy. That's D R A N T H O N Y. L-Y-S-S-Y. That's on Twitter and then also on Instagram as well. You'll find a lot of my golf uh, uh, videos there and, and family videos and pictures and stuff too. More of my golf travels there, but more of the medical side on uh, Dr. Anthony Lissy and um, on Twitter. My also, my, my website is drlissy.com. That's D-R-L-Y-S-S-Y.com. And uh, we'll be updating that very shortly and we'll be adding more blog posts and more information there. Um, but uh, diamondphysicians.com is our group and uh, with our direct primary care and concierge practices, not only here in the Dallas area, but we're starting to expand across the states as well. So uh, for those looking for better direct care, you can certainly find more information on our practices there. So it was an honor to be a part of the show. I love what you're doing. I think it's exciting and uh, I hope to come see you soon over there and play some golf in your beautiful part of the world. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Um, well, I guess uh, I kind of hope that someone like yourself can get in touch with Andy Murray and give him another couple of years, get him another couple of Grand Slam titles. Um, yeah. Best of luck to all your golfers in the Open. And um, I hope they, I hope they, uh, I hope they do one for you. There you go. Well, that'd be great. I always like to, you know, wake up early morning here at our time and uh, flip it on and then see what the weather's bringing for that day and see who's, uh, who's man enough to play through it. So always one of my favorite tournaments of the year. So enjoy it over there and uh, we'll certainly enjoy it over here and we'll get to visit sometime soon, hopefully in person. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks very much again. All right. Thank you. Ali. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.